Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. You may have heard there's a bit of tension happening on the Ukraine-Russian border right now. More than 8,000 U.S. troops are now on heightened alert with fears rising that Russia could invade Ukraine. So far, no troops have been deployed, but the U.S. and its NATO allies are stepping up their response, hoping to discourage Russia from crossing the Ukrainian border. With 100,000 troops standing by, an invasion looks imminent. But the Russian authorities say it's not so. So who do we believe? And why is this happening now? Today, we unpack the long history of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine to find out whether there's a war coming or if it's all just a very powerful man playing with his soldiers in order to get what he wants. To say Russia and Ukraine have traditionally been joined at the hip is a bit of an understatement. Most Ukrainians also speak Russian. Millions of them also work in Russia. Families live spread across the two countries' border. Their histories are intertwined. The creation of both Russia and Ukraine coming after invasions by Romans and Vikings, the migration of Slavic people and influence from the Eurasians. There have been wars over this territory for hundreds of years. Russia annexing Crimea in the 1700s, the area directly next to the coveted Black Sea and its potential for trade routes and seaports. The Russian Empire under Catherine the Great suppressed the Ukrainian people, banning their language, violently ending rebellions and restricting religions other than Eastern Orthodox Christianity. The region went through more upheaval during the Crimean War in the 1850s, which ended with Russia being barred from basing their warships in the Black Sea. But it also marked a turning point for the Russian Empire, which had been weakened by the war. It would lead to them abandoning serfdom and rapidly modernising over the next few decades, determined to become a European power once again. After a disastrous performance in World War I, a Russian revolution broke out in 1917, which led to civil war. And that included the Ukrainian War for Independence, which created the Ukrainian People's Republic. But it lasted for just a few years before in 1921, when the Russian Red Army conquered two-thirds of the country and the Western Third became part of Poland. The Russian portion became the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. In the Soviet era, East and West Ukraine were reunited in 1939 as part of the Nazi-Soviet Pact. Under Russian rule, it became a centre for rapid industrialisation and natural resources. That made it a target for both Hitler and Joseph Stalin whose land reforms caused the Great Soviet Famine that would kill somewhere around 4 million Ukrainian peasants. But some argue that number could actually be as high as 12 million. Of the 2 million Soviet Jews who perished in the Holocaust, the majority of them came from Ukraine. Modern Ukraine emerged as an independent country after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. A referendum was called for a declaration of independence. Of the 84% of the electorate who participated in the referendum, more than 90% supported it. 
In December 1991, it was reported that Russian President Boris Yeltsin had recognised Ukraine's independence. But that didn't mean they weren't still under threat from their Russian neighbour. In February and March 2014, Russia invaded Crimea. They annexed the territory with a widely criticised local referendum and returned it to Russian rule. As of February 2019, the Ukraine government classifies 7% of its territory as being temporarily occupied. So that brings us to 2022. In recent months, pictures have emerged of tanks and other military vehicles being transported to the Ukraine border. Aerial surveillance of the region shows massive amounts of infrastructure, weaponry and somewhere in the vicinity of 100,000 Russian troops. People inside Ukraine are divided. Those who support Russia are saying everything will be fine. Those who are concerned are raiding army surplus stores to stock up on defence and survival gear. Some, like this one young woman, told Euronews that they're trying to decide whether to stay or go. It's scary. Parents are especially afraid. They don't know what the situation will be. The exchange rate for the dollar is rising. Prices are getting higher. The elderly have started to panic. And me and my friends are thinking of going to Europe for a period of time and to wait there. Western countries, including the US, UK, Germany and Australia, have advised their citizens and families of diplomats to leave the country. But a senior official at the Ukraine embassy in Canberra warned that doing so did nothing more than fuel panic and rumours of an imminent invasion. Oleg Nikolenko, a spokesperson for Ukraine's Ministry for Foreign Affairs, tweeted that it was extremely important to avoid activity that could be used to increase tensions, and that includes withdrawing diplomats and their families. The US has put more than 8,000 of its troops on heightened alert, ready to deploy to Eastern Europe if needed, as NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, reinforced eastern borders with warships and fighter jets. So what does Russian President Vladimir Putin want to happen with all his troop manoeuvring? Well, he's called for Ukraine to not be made a member of NATO. Russia's foreign ministry has also pushed for security guarantees, including a retreat of NATO from all countries who signed on to the alliance after the 1997 NATO-Russia Founding Act. In response, the UN Security Council called Russia to a meeting in New York on Monday to please explain the military movements. But the Russian ambassador denied an invasion was imminent and claimed that other countries, including the US in particular, are whipping up hysteria to suit their own agenda. So what's really happening here? John Blacksland is a professor of international security and intelligence studies at the Australian National University's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre in Canberra. John, if invasion isn't the intention, why are there 100,000 Russian troops at the Ukraine border right now? So my sense is they are trying to persuade NATO to back off on its commitments to Ukraine and to Eastern European countries. This is also about asserting Putin's idea of Russian sovereignty over his area of influence, his sphere of influence, which includes the countries on Russia's periphery, which in the past used to be part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR that the Beatles wrote about. And that broke apart in 1991 when the Communist Party of the Soviet Union basically gave up the reins and the union dissolved 
and Russia fell apart. At a low point economically, everyone was caught by surprise, but essentially that's now 31 years ago, and the country that emerged, Ukraine, from that space, one of the countries that emerged, has developed a bit of its own identity and history. So that's something that Vladimir Putin, who's old school Cold War warrior, former KGB officer, who is quite nostalgic for the glory days of the past, is looking to wind back. Why doesn't Russia want Ukraine to be involved with NATO? NATO presents a couple of challenges to Russia. One is that it has been really attractive to all the former Soviet-aligned countries of Eastern Europe that have all subsequently, of their own volition, joined NATO. And that is incredibly galling to Vladimir Putin, who himself is an autocrat who has not been prepared to expose himself to the rigours of a democratic election, and he either locks up or alienates or gets rid of political opponents, the latest of whom was Navalny, who's locked up in Russia. So this is the man who wants to control everything, but the Russia that he has developed is one that is not an attractive one to its neighbours. So failing having the soft power attractiveness of the United States, which is what's drawn so many countries into NATO, Russia has felt the need to assert itself with other means. So in the case of Belarus, which is just west of Russia and just north of Ukraine, he has been propping up a dictator, basically, not allowing democratic elections to happen there either. Why? Because the dictator is one who's in cahoots with Vladimir Putin and who sees benefits in by mutually supporting each other, protecting each other from the rigours of democratic accountability. So that leaves Ukraine, a country that's divided in some respects, politically a bit of a mess in some other respects. It's certainly not the paragon of transparent accountability and rigour, but it is nonetheless, despite its shambolic nature, it's still a democracy and people still get their vote. But there's a big chunk of Ukraine, of the population, who seem to have Russia as their first language, Russian heritage, a closer connection with Russia than with the more distinct Ukrainian identity. And this is a bit of a rub point. This is where we've seen a toing and throwing of leaders of Ukraine over the years who've been pro-Russian or kind of pro-West. And the Ukrainians have a history going back you know, a couple of centuries now of being more sympathetic towards European traditions than Slavic uh, Russian ones. So it's a bit of a complex situation, and Vladimir Putin knows it. Right now, Joe Biden faces enormous challenges. He left Afghanistan with his tail between his legs. He's facing enormous political upheaval inside the United States. He's facing a NATO that is quite divided. We've seen Germany and France take their own approach. France trying to establish a European way that's distinct from the United States. And the Germans basically, having become quite economically dependent on Russia, basically wanting to have nothing to do with the Ukraine problem. So that means that Vladimir Putin knows that NATO is quite divided and has felt that this is a moment where he can exploit the opportunity, push the Ukrainians, get concessions out of NATO, humiliate Joe Biden and bolster his he-man image back in Russia. What do you see the likely outcome of this being, John? I mean, I've seen stories of people in Ukraine clearing out army disposal stores in readiness for battle. I'm reading tweets from people who are speaking to their family back in Ukraine who say, get my wife and family out, but I will stay and fight. Is it really that critical a moment right now? Are we on the brink of war between Russia and Ukraine? 
Russia has deployed on the border of Ukraine forces similar in scale and capacity to those that the United States deployed on the border of Iraq in early 2003, before they invaded Iraq. So the notion, which is the line that the Russians have been pushing, that they're not ready or they're not equipped to do that, they're not postured to do that, is actually a bald-faced lie. It's what we call maskerovka. It's a common word of masking, masking behaviour, to deceive your adversary. This is what he's very good at. This time around, the maskerovka is all about cyber operations, about trying to buy off politicians, about subverting the political system, about sabotage operations, and about providing a pretext, an excuse to say, see, it's all those Ukrainians with the Americans and the British and the NATO countries who've made Ukraine ungovernable. We now have to go in and rescue the Ukrainians. This is the kind of maskerovka that it appears Vladimir Putin has been building up towards, but it's not working very well because everyone's kind of seen through it. It's not very credible anymore. That makes it sound like war could be around the corner. Vladimir Putin has put himself in a corner. He has not given himself easy options to back out. He's demanded from NATO things that NATO can't give them, which is a promise to back out of Eastern Europe and to leave Ukraine to never, ever be allowed to join NATO. NATO is not actually inviting them to be a member. NATO is not deploying armed forces in Ukraine to defend them. So this is a bit of a false pretense on Russia's part, on Vladimir Putin's part, to justify his aggression to gain control over the politics and the processes in Ukraine so that Ukraine will fall once again under Russia's sphere of influence, much like Belarus has done. This is why NATO and other countries are saying, hang on, we really can't cave on this because if we let him have this, that's probably just going to embolden him to make more demands over Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria. These countries don't want Russia. They had from 1945 to 1990, 55 years under Soviet domination. They don't want that back. That was not a pleasant experience for many of them. They have warmly embraced Europe and NATO, and Putin can't blame that on American perfidy. That's simply because it's more attractive. You can't blame them. And Putin has done nothing to make Russia attractive instead. While the politics and history of the Ukraine-Russia relationship is long and complex, the one question we all want to know the answer to right now is... Is Russia about to drag us into another European war? So that's unlikely, but there are about half a dozen plausible scenarios that could see the Russians conduct operations across the border into parts of Ukraine that they haven't already taken. They could do something from the south, from Crimea, up along the coast of the Black Sea to the west towards Bulgaria, or from eastern Ukraine and Russia to take the eastern half of Ukraine. They could come down from the north through Belarus or where the juncture of Belarus and Russia is, that area there, it's toxic, it's poison ground, because that's where Chernobyl is located. Of course, we all know that Chernobyl is a kind of poisoned land that you can't go to, so they would have to skirt around that by either going around Belarus to the west or to the east of it to get the capital of Kiev, which is south of Chernobyl. No one is talking about a full military response, but, you know, things can escalate. But what they are talking about is extensive sanctions. And here's where Australia could be involved. 
Now, they've already had sanctions imposed following the 2014 invasion of eastern Ukraine and the Crimea. But these could be accelerated and deepened, and they've got a new thing now called the Magnitsky Act, which has happened in Australia too, where you can actually target individuals. So you can actually go after the close inner circle of Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Putin himself and their stash of cash in London banks and in you know Paris hotels and things like that, which is where they like to live it up large. So you can actually impinge upon these these decision makers, and let's face it, Putin is the key decision maker, but his politburo around him, his political bureau or his cabinet, if you like, to dissuade them from going crossing that military kinetic threshold, you know, where you actually start shooting at each other. The problem is, though, that Vladimir Putin's a proud man. He's a cunning man. So hopefully he'll find a way to back out without feeling his pride is too hurt that he needs to go in and attack Ukraine. But we really don't know what's going to happen next. And as I say, there are many options. I've presented some of the more benign ones, but there are some darker ones where this could become like a sucking vortex that could really bring Russia and NATO in and it could provide an excuse for conflagrations in East Asia, be it from the North Koreans in the Korean Peninsula or across the Taiwan Strait. So there are all sorts of potential knock-on consequences here that are particularly unsettling. I'm believing and hoping that diplomacy will prevail, that sanity will prevail, and that Vladimir Putin will see that he's not in his interests to go beyond what he's already done. And let's face it, effectively, Ukraine's not going to join NATO. So that is, in effect, a de facto concession is one. And if he spins it in a positive way, he could use that as justification to back off. So he's hoping that's what he does. That's the quickie for today. This episode was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.